0: This is an Odyssey Original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping, and this week for Mike Simpson.
1: And I'm Charles Feldman. Dr. Anthony Fauci joins us again to discuss the fight against COVID, President Biden's status, masks, and if retooled vaccines are our way out of this pandemic come the fall. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi could be headed to Taiwan as part of her trip to Asia, which has the Biden administration worried about what reaction China might have. In another big wildfires chewing through forest in Northern California,
0: we look into whether there are enough resources to battle fires this late summer and fall. The younger generation is expecting more flexibility from their employers, and some employers are happily delivering. We go in-depth into new plans to keep workers happy. A new study finds one path out of poverty is having rich friends when you're a kid. And if you're looking for a great deal on something you want, like a new TV, you can find great bargains if you know where to look. It's always good to have rich friends. Yeah, it's better than the alternative, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we'll look into that a little bit later. We start, though, with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Doctor, thanks for being with us again. Let me Let me start by asking about President Biden. He's still testing positive, but is asymptomatic, but it does raise an issue because we keep hearing about more and more cases of people taking the antiviral drug Paxlovid who have these uh, these rebound positive tests. And you had that uh, too. But the public is being told it's a minority of people, yet we keep hearing
2: about more and more cases. Yeah, that, that is a, an interesting question that's a little bit, I would say, puzzling now because uh, Several studies that have looked carefully at it indicate that, you know, the original study from Pfizer in which they did the randomized placebo-controlled trial, uh, but that was during the Delta era, not the Omicron or the BA5 era. And they said that the incidence of rebound was about 2% with Paxlovid and about 1.6%. With the control, which means it's not statistically significantly different. A couple of subsequent studies have come out and have showed that it's somewhere maybe a few percentage points more than that, but certainly less than double digits. And yet, when you look at the accumulation of the anecdotal cases, it certainly does appear that it's significantly more than that. And that's the reason why. Now, a number of studies are going to be looking at just that at the same time of trying to find out whether or not the number is really higher than what the original determination is, whether that has to do with the fact that we're dealing with a virus that's much more transmissible and maybe has some capabilities of evading a response more so than the virus that were circulating when these original studies were done. So there are a couple of things that we need to find out and some studies are either being conducted already or are being designed to be conducted, is to determine whether or not a longer durability of treatment would prevent a rebound. And at the same time, to look at the natural history to determine if in fact in the era of the BA5, which is now more than 80% of the isolates throughout the country, whether that's a bit different than what the original data was. So you're bringing up important issues. These are important questions that are now being very actively pursued. Let me ask you a a,
1: a secondary question still on the Paxlovid issue. In terms of guidance for Physicians, because as you, you know, the, the CDC's recommendation for Paxlovid is a one-time thing. Five and you're done, and if it comes back and you test positive, uh, many doctors say, well, there are no guidelines about whether we should do a second round. The president, I understand, is not getting a second right. round. I, I think you did. Am I correct about that?
2: Yes, I did.
1: Right. So, so what guidelines would you give to yeah. the physician?
2: Yeah, I'm not going to give you guidelines now. That's something that the CDC is actively considering. Obviously, I'll be talking to them about it, but I don't want to be talking, and I hope you understand why, when you're going to get a group of people together to find out what is the best, most prudent, and most important thing to be recommending. But right now, I don't want to jump ahead of them with that at this point.
0: Dr. Fauci, we quoted a study uh, last week saying that of people that are recommended to get the second booster, those 50 and older, only 30% have done so. Uh, It's got to be discouraging for somebody who has been promoting the value and the efficacy of these vaccines from the very beginning. As people aren't dying as much from this disease and as we've learned to live with it over these last two and a half years, do you think more people just feel... The liberty to take things into their own hands. They know their own judgment now. It's not as much of a novel virus as it used to be. Probably still is in the technical term, but. And as we're going into the fall and these highly infectious seasons into November and December, uh, that could add up to uh, something problematic.
2: Yeah, it it is really quite discouraging. Understandable that everyone has uh, is is you know in essence exhausted by what we have been through over the past. Now, more than two and a half years since January, February of 2020. Uh, but if you look at the statistics, they are really very, very clear about the issue concerning the risk of advancing to severe consequences leading to hospitalization and, in some cases, death. Now, obviously, this is very heavily weighted towards the unvaccinated towards people who have underlying conditions, towards the elderly. But you will see that there are enough people, not an overwhelming number, but enough people who don't fall into those categories that if they don't get uh, vaccinated or they don't get boosted, they're going to get into trouble. Also, if you want to get your arms around, metaphorically as it were, the outbreak, you want to get as many people in our community, and by community, I mean our nation and the world, vaccinated and boosted, so you don't give this virus such ample opportunity to freely circulate. And when you do that, the virus has more of an opportunity to mutate. And when you give it an opportunity to mutate, that's when you get new variants. That's one reason why you're right, people say, well, the risk to me is low, so why get it? It, it, is, it is about you as an individual, but it's also about the communal responsibility to get this outbreak under the control, as well as the fact that there are still some significant unknowns about what we're calling long COVID. And people who get infected, who may not necessarily wind up in the hospital, and certainly may not necessarily die, who get enough symptomatology or enough of a interaction of that virus with their system that they do get prolongation of symptoms. So you don't want COVID to dominate the lives of people in this country or throughout the world, but you don't want to, by wishing it's behind us and it's in the rear view mirror, not do things that would be prudent. And we're not talking about locking down and we're not talking about mandating things. We're just talking about common sense, getting the appropriate interventions when they are available to you. And right now we have boosters that are very effective in diminishing any aspect of the infection. Infection, but still a virus like BA5, which is the most prevalent circulating virus, is so transmissible that it often breaks through the protection of vaccine. But the vaccines and the boosters still do a very good job of preventing you from progressing to severe disease.
0: Doctor, we keep seeing surges because of these new variants. We've seen one here in Los Angeles County where health officials strongly considered bringing back an indoor mask mandate, but they did not, in part due to public pressure. Some doctors here say we're not to the point where we're stretched to capacity at hospitals. So did public health officials here make the right call? Yeah,
2: I've been in contact, uh, oh, goodness, over the last two years with the health authorities in California, particularly in Los Angeles. Yeah, see, one of one of the issues that, that you know, if I might sort of rephrase what they're saying, is that if you mandate, as you well know, has almost a radioactive aspect to it. You say mandate and people uh, understandably push back, thinking you're encroaching upon their ability to make their own decisions about themselves. But by not mandating doesn't mean that you don't strongly recommend that people do wear a mask. And what the health officials in LA were saying is that we, the hospital system is not as stressed as it was back at the time when there were mandates. So although we're not backing off at all on saying we strongly recommend you wear a mask, they're not resorting to a mandate. I believe that's what they're saying. Let's uh,
1: sort of end our, our time together on uh, a different uh, apparent epidemic, a monkeypox. Is the US, in your view, doing enough? Uh, have we learned lessons from the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic that are now carrying over into dealing with monkeypox?
2: Well, well, first of all, we, you always can do better in anything that you're doing when it comes to a public health emergency. It's a very unusual situation where we have the outbreak that predominantly, well, more than 95, close to 99% is now afflicting men who have sex with men. But We should not assume that it's going to stay within that category. I think that would be an assumption based on no real data because there's a lot we don't know. But one of the things that we had in place really almost circumstantially related to uh, biodefense against a potential smallpox bioterror attack was the stockpiling of 100 million doses of a smallpox vaccine that's effective against monkeypox, thinking that there would be a at least something that we had in a stockpile against smallpox and a relatively lesser amount that was made in Denmark by Bavaria Nordic that was supposed to be for people who couldn't tolerate the standard smallpox vaccine, which we have 100 million doses of. As it turned out, that we have interventions now that logistically were not easily gotten to the community at first. But now we're seeing it happen and hopefully it'll get even better that there will be literally over a million doses of vaccine available to the community literally within the next week or two because already 130,000 doses have been distributed Another 400,000, I think a week ago, came came through, ready to go. And now there's going to be another 748,000, and the total is going to be somewhere over a million. The other thing we've got to do, we've got to make sure that the therapy, the T-pox that's available for monkeypox, that physicians can get to that without a lot of the bureaucratic obstacles that were in the way with paperwork and a variety of other things that made it difficult for physicians to easily and expeditiously get therapy. In addition, more tests, originally about 6,000 tests per week were available. That's now up to 80,000 tests a week. So hopefully we're really on a right track now to be able to handle all of the needs of people who are either absolutely been exposed or who are in a category where they are at risk, even though they don't know that they have been exposed. One is called post-exposure prophylaxis or PEP, and the other requires a much larger number of vaccines And that's pre-exposure prophylaxis.
0: You recently mentioned, Dr. Fauci, in your words, uh, from what I understand, almost certainly uh, will be retiring at the end of this current presidential term. Uh, Why then? I mean, it does make sense to where, you know, it's a potential for maybe a new boss. And if not, if it's the same one, maybe in a different direction based on a lot of other factors out there. But did it just feel right to do it then? Because we will obviously need your uh, expertise beyond then. although you have, you know, there are many other people uh, who are ready to take the torch. But what factored into that decision?
2: Well, that was misreported uh, by Politico. Uh, What I did say that I don't anticipate that I will be in my current position in the U.S. government any time after January, 2025. I never said when I would step down. And when I asked, I said, I would step down anywhere from now until January, 2025. And that was misinterpreted as saying I was gonna step down at January, 2025. And if you look back carefully, And what I said, I never, ever said that. I said I wouldn't go beyond that time. I haven't made up my mind yet when I'll do that. But when I do, and namely officially step down from my current position, I will always make myself available 24-7 to the government to provide them with the benefit of my experience and my expertise. My stepping down from a position in the government, whenever that might be, is not going to have me not be available when I'm needed, only in a different capacity. Dr. Fauci, as
1: always, thank you very much for taking the time, and we hope to have you back again soon. All right. Thank you very
2: much. Nice to be with you. Thank you.
1: And a little bit later on, younger workers, they're demanding more flexibility at work, and they're getting it. And just because inflation is at a 40-year high doesn't mean There are some really good shopping deals. We'll explain
0: where you can find them. Right now, though, both the U.S. and Taiwanese officials say House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is expected to visit Taiwan as part of her trip to Asia this week, possibly as soon as tomorrow. The Biden administration has warned against a visit because it would anger China, and relations with China are already a little shaky. With us is Andrew Murtha, director of the Science China Global Research Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. And, uh, Andrew, first of all, really what is... uh, the, the purpose of this visit, and is it worth the risk?
3: Hi, so uh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a great question. So it's unclear what the purpose of the visit is. I mean, you can uh, attach any number of uh, possible explanations, but um, uh, what is certainly going to happen, and this may be one of the goals, is it's going to put Xi Jinping in an awkward position and possibly uh, uh, create a, a situ- an awkward situation within China in the lead-in to the 20th Party Congress, where he's expected to announce a third term. So if we're trying to somehow uh, get China to uh, move in a certain direction or act in a certain way, it would require something with scalpel-like precision. But I think uh, uh, Pelosi's visit to Taiwan would actually be much uh, a much blunter instrument, more akin to a hammer.
1: I'm curious about uh, what you think of, of, of this notion, because as I'm sure you know, the White House, sometimes it isn't quite what it seems or what they do isn't quite what it seems. And we keep being told that President Biden has, you know, told her that he doesn't like the idea for going, but he has not said not to go because he doesn't really have that authority anyway, because she's uh, the head of an equal, co-equal branch of government. But do you buy that story or do you think that she's going because this is something the president really wants her to do and wants to send a strong signal to China, but it kind of distances him from the whole thing?
3: i That's certainly a possibility. I think it would be um, him trying to be a little too clever by half. I mean, you don't want to uh, delegate uh, authority to Congress if you're the chief executive. Um, on the other hand, there may be something... Uh, akin to um, a good cop, bad cop um, uh, approach to China that might have more to do with um, the midterms uh, elections uh, in the fall than with an actual coherent China policy.
0: That's Andrew Martha, director of the Science China Global Research Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Andrew, thank you. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Brian Ping, and for Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Felton. Well, California basically has a year-round wildfire season now, but it usually peaks from about this time of year until the end of October. And right on cue, the state is dealing with a major fire at the Oregon border.
1: The McKinney Fire has burned more than 55,000 acres in Klamath National Forest. At least two people have been found dead. Now, this comes as there are other major fires burning in the West. With fires getting larger in size and number each year, do we have enough resources to fight them all? Chris Dikas is professor of Wildland Fire and Fuels Management with Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Thanks for being with us. So, Professor, that that is the question. uh, With more and more fires happening in more and more places at the same time, do we have the resources to deal with it?
4: Well, I think that we do a really, really good job of sharing resources between federal, state, and local uh, jurisdictions. But when you have a lot of large fires happening simultaneously, the sharing becomes very difficult. And like we saw in 2020 when there were lightning busts all up and down the state, uh, the fire service can simply just get overwhelmed. And sometimes fires will just burn unabated with uh, almost no one on it. But it's just simply because we don't have the bodies at a given time.
0: And, uh, yeah, we've been... Reporting on that there's been major shortages, both at the federal level and even the local level as well, but particularly with federal lands, Uh, the U.S. Forest Service can't devote the same sort of resources. And a lot of these firefighters aren't getting paid nearly as much as what you could uh, for, say, some of the local agencies where you're actually saving homes and getting all the headlines.
4: Absolutely. It is extremely difficult to, to staff uh, federal firefighters, especially in California, uh, just because the wages are so low compared to our cost of living. So down in the San Bernardino and in Angeles and in the Los Padres National Forest, it's very, very difficult to hire and keep firefighters because they can go get uh, sometimes double the pay working for a local agency. And I've seen that with personal friends of mine up-and-coming fire professionals in the Forest Service, and they went over to a local station simply because they literally tripled their salary.
1: You know, I was reading the other day that in Europe, for example, where they also are, are experiencing many more fires than they are used to because they, too, uh, have been getting uh, drier and hotter weather, they're kind of scratching their heads about what their long-term planning might be are you confident that our long-term planning is is adequate
4: um <laughs> short answer is absolutely not uh we're moving in the right direction but we have have we have such a mess out there right now in terms of very volatile fuels uh after 100 years of fire exclusion and then having climate change coming through it's very very difficult Now, that said, I am encouraged that uh, California as a state has uh, decided, you know, we can't just keep putting the fires out because they do serve an ecological role. And we have invested as a state into more crews that are specifically dedicated to prescribed burning and to mechanical treatments uh, so that once the eventual wildfire does come, it's almost like preparing that battlefield. It'll make it much easier for our firefighters to protect, uh, you know, our our local neighbors
0: and uh, the things that we hold dear to our hearts. All right. That's Chris Dykes, professor of wildland fire and fuels management with Cal Poly San Luis Obispo.
1: Well, businesses have had to adapt because of the pandemic, which led to a labor shortage and, of course, the so-called great resignation, which has seen millions of people quit their jobs and search for
0: better opportunities. So businesses are now offering much more flexibility, including four-day work weeks, letting people work from home, and even paying for therapy sessions. It's all appealing to the younger generation, Gen Z, which is looking for a change to the usual 9-to-5 Monday-to-Friday grind. Julie Bauke is president and chief career strategist at the Bauke Group. And uh, so, Julie, with this uh, phenomenon, it looks like... uh, Employers aren't exactly seeing a big drop in productivity because of these changes in policy, or are they?
5: No, they really aren't. I mean, the, the whole work from anywhere, work from home thing that we all went through during the pandemic, when they looked at productivity numbers as well as how much time people were actually spending working, they found that a, a lot of people, many, most people spent that time they gained by not having to commute um, doing extra work. So the numbers are all very supportive of a work-from-home, work-from-anywhere kind of model. Um, But employers, especially boomer employers, are having a hard time with it.
1: But uh, I'm curious if those, uh, you know, especially the the younger folks who want to work these flexible hours, if they're not shooting themselves in the foot because they think that they're going to perhaps have an easier time because they're not commuting and they're not doing all the stuff that's a drag going to and from work, uh, but, in the end, do they end up working more hours weird hours when if they did the nine to five thing you know come five o 'clock they 're done
5: yeah, but you know what're what we 're what we're seeing is they're they are, they want to they want an integrated life they don 't want i gotta be you know butt in seat at eight or nine, and you know then I might leave at five for my commute, but i 'm still tethered to my phone. I'm tethered to my computer. And so you can still find me outside of working hours. And so what they want is the ability to work. If I want to go work out at lunchtime or if I want to work out in the morning and come back and do work in the afternoon, maybe take time off for happy hour, come back and do some work late at night. They want to be treated like, look, you give me work to do, I will get it done. Let's not worry about when I get it done or where I get it done. You trust me. You hired me. You trust me to get it done. Manage the work and not the people. And once you have people who've proven that they can work like that and they can be trusted to work like that, that's what they're asking for. They're saying, look, I, I, if I prove to you I can work like that, why do you care if you can put your eyes on me? And it's, you know, it's, it's a compelling argument. And frankly, it's what generations older than them have really wanted for years. But we never had the, I don't know, the courage, the structure. There wasn't the technology to support work from home, work from anywhere. And so we simply longed for the opportunity to have more flexibility in our lives. And the younger generation is saying, you know, because there is still a talent shortage and there will be in certain industries for a long time, you know, we, if you don't give it to us, we will go elsewhere and no pounding your fist on the desk is going to change that.
0: Is there generational friction because of all that? Because, as you mentioned, the older generation, they didn't have those those options at their disposal. And now they're seeing people much younger than them working not nearly as many hours at the workplace, if at all. It's got to be maybe just a, a little bit of uh, maybe envy
5: there. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the before the pandemic, I remember people saying, you know, the older people saying, um, well, you know, these younger people, they want to like their job. They want it to be fun. They want to enjoy it. They, they've got to, they don't understand they have to pay their dues. And that used to make me laugh because I thought, what you're really saying is they haven't suffered enough. What if they're finding a way to not suffer? What if they really look at work differently? And I'm a boomer, so I can, I can, you know, talk about my generation this way. What if they have the right idea? Where you think about the old boomer model of go to work. When you're 22, get a job, hold on to it, and you know, for dear life, until the day you can walk away with a pension, then and only then can you start having fun. And we saw a lot of people just drop dead after that. You know, they just, it, it, was, it was, you know, a slog, slog, slog. Then, then you're allowed to have fun. The younger generation is saying, yeah, we're not going to wait. And the stats bear it out because by the year 2030, which is a scant eight years away, Seventy four percent of the workforce is going to be millennials and Gen Z. So they are going to have their way and only one point five percent of the market of the job market is going to be boomers. But isn't
1: there here a class division which we in America are loath to really talk about, even though it exists? I mean, we're talking about certain kinds of jobs, Right where yeah, somebody can have the luxury of working from home and going you mentioned before, you know, going to the gym maybe and then coming back and finishing the work when they when they're ready to do it, but an awful lot of jobs in America don't lend themselves to that.
5: Yeah, they certainly don't. And you know, it's it's there the jobs that require you to be there to be physically present that absolutely require. The job cannot be done with let's say a physical therapist, you know, as an example. Um Yes, they what they what their employers might want to do instead. In that case, because they don't have the work from anywhere option, look at developing a flexible schedule. Can you get the work done? Can you offer your people a 4-day work week? Can you do or, you know, leave at noon? And it maybe it varies from staff member to staff member from week to week. But you've got and and you what this generation is saying is we want to be able to do we want more flexibility to manage our lives. And so there are jobs that just because of the nature of the job, you're not going to have that. But customer service, I mean, there's a lot of phone-related jobs, working for airlines, working in customer service, working in insurance. Those aren't necessarily jobs that require a college degree or, you know, are considered highly paid jobs, but they could be done. They can be done from home. You know, so its I think there's there's more flexibility and ways to make this happen, as we found out when everybody was rushed into their homes and the doors slammed behind them during COVID companies had to figure it out. And so now these people are saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to come back. I know somebody, a young woman who had in a very great job at Tesla, not Tesla, at SpaceX that she loved. What did Elon Musk come out and say, get back in the office? She said, nope. And she was very highly thought of. She went looking for a new job. She said, I'm not going to do that looking for a new job, had another great job, a better job within three days. So they're not afraid to move when they don't get what they want. And you can say, "Oh, that sounds spoiled, et cetera, et cetera." But the truth is, the older generations for years have said, "Look, we're willing to take a pay cut. I've seen up to 10% to give me more flexibility over my schedule." So this is something that you know we're moving toward and you know anybody that wants to clutch their pearls and say no you can't you have got to do it the old way i think you've got i think you've got some pain coming
0: julie balky president and uh, chief career strategist at the balky group julie thank you what do you say brian that we that
1: we become flexible let's just not do the last half hour of the show
0: uh, what what should we play instead just uh put on some yeah classic hits yeah or, something you know. like that you know and then nah well, i guess we'll come back This is
1: KNX In-Depth,
0: Brian Ping, in for Mike Simpson, and I'm Charles Feldman. new study finds it literally pays to have rich friends. Researchers say for poor children living in an area where there's a better chance of becoming friends with rich kids can significantly increase how much they make as an adult. And it's all about, well, connections. You know, who you know.
1: Matthew Jackson is an economics professor at Stanford University and one of the study's co-authors. Matthew, thanks for being with us, I, I guess it makes sense that that, you know, it's it's who, you know, and if you know people who are in the right places and and can give you opportunities, then that's a good thing.
6: Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, and I, you know, one of the things that we find in the study is that it actually starts at a pretty early age. So your, your friends in high school can matter a lot um, in later life. And, and so they set the stage for who you're going to become and, and what opportunities you have
0: but you got to get there in the first place and it can be tough for somebody who is not of uh, many means to even get into a neighborhood especially with housing costs the way they are to to surround themselves with uh, wealthier children. Yeah, most yeah, definitely. So it,
6: you know that when we look at why people are connected or why they aren't connected to to um, wealthier people and why they don't advance, you know, part of it is just who's around you and then the other part is do you connect to those people? Are you friends with them? Are are you able to really um, take advantage of that and, and, uh, you know, um, make friendships and both of them matter? You know, you need you need to have people in contact with each other and then you need them to interact once they're in contact. And um, both of those are very important in in the outcomes.
1: You know, it's interesting, the study, because it it does jibe with my own experience. I taught for a few years at USC and I used to uh, ask uh, the classes, in the beginning of each semester, why they were there. And I was always a little surprised that usually they didn't say uh, to get a great education or to whatever. But most of the time they would say because uh, uh, we wanted to make good connections. We wanted to have, you know, the ability to know people who know other people. And that kind of jibes with what you're saying.
6: Yeah. So, you know, there's always been this idea of networking and networking yeah. is important in, in business and in life. And, you know, the, this study um, really unpacks that and, and shows it's important uh, for all people and and beginning at early ages and throughout their lives. And I think it's, you know, trying to understand then how to how to networks form. Uh, you know, that becomes the sort of interesting aspect in terms of trying to improve mobility reduce inequality, you know, how can we improve people's networks? And and that's something that we try and, you know, dive into in, in part of this study.
0: This is something that schools could use possibly to, you know, justify uh, maybe an increased investment in charter schools and maybe busing uh, from people in low-income neighborhoods to uh, higher-income areas.
6: Yeah, and, I, I, you know, I, I can talk about one interesting example that we've gone through. We, we've dunked into a few schools and One was, say, Berkeley High School, and and Berkeley High School is, you know, a little over 3,000 students. It actually is is a fairly well-balanced students uh, school in terms of its demographics, both in terms of ethnicity and income levels. And yet it was a pretty segregated school when you actually look inside of it in terms of the friendships. And the kind of thing that they tried to do to change that was they looked inside and it used to be that they had five different tracks. Right. So, you know, you had honors programs, AP classes, you had remedial classes, you had and a whole set of different classes, and that would separate all the students out. And those students wouldn't have chances to make friendships. So what the school started doing is having these sort of small, what they called hives or, you know, home, home rooms where they, they actually have the students together for all four years in small groups where they're completely mixed in, and that allows them to form friendships. So, you know, part of it is is making sure that that you've got a, a a diverse student body, but then also making sure that they can actually meet each other and and interact with each other and become friends. So, for someone who might be listening who is thinking, "Well, gee,
1: I don't have any rich friends and I don't have those is there some way they can go about doing that?" I mean, you don't want to go through life deliberately seeking out people only because they're rich or
6: or maybe yeah. you do. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think Um, You know, here, when we look at it in terms of income, that's not necessarily what really matters. Part of it is when kids are growing up in high school, what are their friends doing? Are their friends studying and doing homework and thinking about taking SATs and going to college? Do they have information about what college is like? Or are they, you know, not, are they they ditching classes and and not studying and planning on um, just taking a minimum wage job? And those two different trajectories can influence a kid. And so part of it is just, you know, what's the information that they have? Who's watching out for them? Do they have mentors who could actually give them information that they don't necessarily have through their own network? So, you know, people can acquire it and, and parents can make sure that their kids are, are getting some of the information that they normally would get through friends and, and families of friends. Uh, so if that's not there, you can try and supplement it. Uh, and, and, and the other is, you know, as you're, as you're pointing out, it's, it's impossible to just move everybody around in the U.S., um, but we can try and figure out what's missing and and try to supplement
0: that. Stanford Economics Professor Matthew Jackson. Professor, thanks for joining us.
6: So
1: I guess go out and, and befriend a rich person.
0: Yeah, put yourself out there. Yeah. Be nice to everybody, but if that person happens to be rich, then, hey, great. <laughs>
1: Not too long ago, supply chain issues were leaving store shelves empty. Now those issues have led to more inventory than needed, so much so that big stores are
0: overstocked. They're not throwing away their extra stuff. A lot of it is being picked up by liquidation warehouses, which are filling up, meaning shoppers can find some amazing discounts when inflation's at a 40-year high. With us is Trey Butch, shopping expert and lifestyle writer, whose website, truetray.com T-R-A-E, helps people with smart shopping. And so, Trey, what kind of deals can we find out there?
7: Well, it looks like at the whole, the liquidation warehouses, you can save 20% or more. But certainly, you can save just about that much if you shop with a regular retailer as well. So, for instance, you know if Walmart's trying to get rid of some merchandise, you can buy a deeply discounted ride at Walmart. Or you can go to a liquidation warehouse, which is maybe a less, little less convenient to get to.
1: I mean, are there many of these type of warehouses around?
7: So in my research, I haven't found that there are that many and certainly not as many as there are Walmarts, for example, and liquidation warehouses are really good for wholesalers. So, for example, if you sell at flea markets and you go to your liquidation warehouse, you buy a bunch of deeply discounted merchandise, and then you sell it at your flea market. That to me is more where a liquidation warehouse would come in handy, not so much for the day to day consumer.
0: So you have to physically go to these warehouses or do they have uh, a website where they might uh, take at least a selection of it and put it up there?
7: So it looks like a little bit of both. Uh, You know, I don't know if we're really there in that place where regular consumers are going to start using liquidation warehouses as their method of shopping. What I am seeing though is that people are taking advantage of the sales from retailers themselves, but then also doing things like shopping more at dollar stores. And for example, Dollar General is really sort of upping their game and offering larger selection, more groceries, fresh, Produce things like that for that consumer who's really struggling.
1: Okay, so let's talk about what kinds of bargains are out there. I mean, can I get, for example, a state of the art, a smart TV for I don't know, like five bucks?
7: I don't know if I <laughs> would expect that. <laughs> okay,
1: so I'm over, I'm overreaching as what you're saying on that. You still want that cheap TV? Yeah, I want yeah. that
7: cheap TV. Who I, doesn't actually?
1: No, I don't. But but what kind of bargains are out there, and what kind of things?
7: I mean, really, it it really depends on the consumer and what you're looking for. And of course, what's been returned, what condition it's in. So it's really all over the place with the liquidation warehouses. And so I just find for an average consumer, going to that regular retail store is probably a better option or doing um, gently used items on Amazon, Facebook Marketplace, directly from consumers so these are other options that i think might be more realistic for the average consumer to take advantage of right now as they're trying to save money with uh inflation as high as it is
0: we're a long way away from sorting out all the shipping log jams as china reopens its ports, so it seems like this is something that isn't going to be ending anytime soon and perhaps all the way through the holidays people could score some big deals at these uh liquidation warehouses
7: yeah, absolutely. And and you know, things are a little topsy turvy right now because of the supply chain issues. So the reason why this is happening is because at the beginning of the pandemic, we all rushed to buy certain things, like TVs, like you mentioned, or athleisure, um, patio furniture. And then retailers placed those orders and then we ran into a bunch of supply chain issues that happened across the world. And so now a lot of that merchandise is coming in. Retailers are struggling with all of this excess merchandise, and especially if the items are large. Um, even the the largest retailer like Target, Walmart, Macy's, et cetera, they only have so much room. So it's really tricky to figure out what they're going to do with this merchandise. And that's where these liquidators are kind of coming into play. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if this becomes kind of a trend where people will start personally going to these liquidator, liquidators to buy certain things on their own, or if they're going to continue with those more uh, traditional methods of shopping.
1: Uh, And are these items mostly that have been returned, or are some of these just
7: brand new? It's actually both. And so uh, returns from online shopping are way, way up because online shopping is way up. You know, of course, during the pandemic, as we were kind of trapped in our homes, we were doing a lot of online shopping and online shopping has a higher rate of return than in store shopping anyway. And so with that increase of online shopping and returning, we have a lot of excess uh, products laying around and, you know, you have something with say an open box uh, and, you know, it it gets tricky for a retailer to hold that merchandise. It takes up space and how do they sell it and what do they price it at? And the other challenge too for retailers is that you know they don't want to be seen as deeply discounting all the time because then that kind of trains the consumer to expect that behavior. And so in some cases, it's easier for a retailer to uh, sell off to a, a liquidator, for example, so they're not so deeply discounting their own merchandise, you know, so things are like marked down 70% on their sales floor. It's just kind of a way to uh, not train the consumer to expect that level of discounting.
0: That's Trey Bond, shopping expert and lifestyle writer, whose website truetray.com helps people with smart shopping. Trey spelled T-R-A-E. And Trey, thanks so much for joining us. This has been KNX In-Depth. Back tomorrow.